Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is behind the mind-wrenching phenomenon of demonic possession? To help those who are afflicted, do we turn to religion, medicine, physics, or all three? Are demons what they appear to be? Hello, and welcome to the 981st edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WON, AM, and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and that was Paul, and today we bring you a distinguished guest on a topic of great interest. And if you uh, have any questions or comments, call us from anywhere uh, at 401-766-1240 or email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Well, very disappointingly, we have not been able to reach the guest, uh, but hopefully he will uh, call in uh, momentarily, uh, but I will introduce him. A graduate of Princeton University who earned his medical degree at Yale, Dr. Richard Gallagher is a board-certified psychiatrist, professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College, and is on the faculty of the Psychoanalytic Institute of Columbia University. Fighting demons wasn't part of his career plan while he was studying medicine at Yale. He knew about biblical accounts of demonic possession, but thought they were an ancient culture's attempt to grapple with mental disorders like epilepsy. He firmly considers himself a man of science, but he has become the go-to guy for American exorcists. He uh, has seen overwhelming evidence that demonic possession is real. He is the author of Demonic Foes, My 25 Years as a Psychiatrist Investigating Possessions, Diabolical Attacks, and the Paranormal. And we certainly would have been honored to have him today, but, uh, and again, hopefully he will, will call in, uh, via Zoom. Uh, so. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I was actually, I, I was very much looking forward to this because I, I, I always think it's really interesting because, um, modern cosmology is so, so odd because it's, everything's very, uh, what's the word? Nothing's really connected. It's all kind of like bits and pieces of, this, of of the same thing. And there's there's this one quote. I forget if it was from C.S. Lewis, but it was uh, it was in a lecture I heard a while ago that was like any any sort of uh, generation of um, like let's say in this case we'll say Christian has kind of come up with their own sort of way for how demons are. And it's always something they hate the most, typically. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, you have the medieval sort of, like, torture and stuff like that. And then you have, you know, ranges from everything from us to, like, from that to, like, C.S. Lewis and his sort of version of them as, like, bureaucrats. And yeah. <laughs> in screw tape letters, like, something the most diabolical thing you could think of, bureaucrats. Huh. And, and so it's it's kind of funny that um, that it, it, they're viewed so differently. Uh, so I'm I'm always interested in how it's interpreted. And I was actually very excited to hear someone who's a clinical psychologist talk about it. Yes. Uh, well, we have um, about 500 questions based on his book, plus we have listener questions as well. <laughs> uh, Every time, huh? So, so we would have had, uh, hopefully will have him on and uh, probably take uh, several shows just to get through the question. Um, I did, as we always do with guests, we don't know. Uh, I had a long and stimulating conversation with him um, a few weeks ago before we booked him. And uh, I was uh, 
very impressed by several things. We, he, first of all, and this is going to sound terribly conceited, but the fact is that with more than half a century of doing this, uh, we don't often have guests who um, have more experience than I do. But he has a lot more experience than I do with exorcisms. Uh, my last uh, knockdown, dragout exorcisms were in the 1970s when I was a uh, student for the priesthood and was assisting a priest uh, in upstate New York at a psychiatric hospital where there were issues. And uh, Dr. Uh, <coughs> Gallagher has um, started his uh, career at this, but you know, he didn't expect to. But he was a practicing uh, psychiatrist and uh, educator. And uh, all of a sudden, a priest appeared at his door. In the book, he refers to him as Father Jacques, uh, with a a woman who um, was uh, judged to be possessed eventually. And one of the reasons it's important to have Dr. Uh, someone like Dr. Gallagher involved in a case like that is that you have to make sure that the person is not just having a psychiatric uh, episode or series of episodes. Uh, that's why in the seminary in, in upstate New York in the in 1970s, uh, the academic dean and the faculty who were surprisingly open to my assisting uh, or at least studying this uh, these phenomena uh, set up special courses for me in abnormal psychology. The idea being that you can separate uh, presumably people who are bonkers from people who are having actual paranormal experiences or demonic experiences. Uh, but I found that it wasn't that simple. Uh, there seemed to be cases where psychiatric illness was intertwined with the uh, paranormal paranormal situations and uh <clears throat> we need to watch that for when he i mean you can see it on here well you can okay yes all right just checking the technics of it um so it was a real education i don't think you can let him in oh that's a good point yeah hold on all right well anyway sorry for the uh confusion live radio anything can happen but uh, so I found it was much more complex than uh, even they suspected. Uh, it was interesting in, in oh, he's, he's there? He's here. Oh, that's great. Okay, we uh, make sure we have him uh, here. And uh, did you admit him? I did. Very good. Dr. Gallagher, are you with us? Okay, better turn them up. Oh, yeah. There we go. That would probably okay. be helpful, huh? Very good. You had us uh, chewing our fingernails here, and I was um, attempting know, just, to... Just, just in the nick of time. Thanks. I'm coming back from the hospital. Oh, okay. Well, I hope you're okay. No, it's, 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 not, it's not me. I still work in the hospital. Oh, okay. Very good. Well, why don't we begin with uh, uh, something that really jumped out at me. A number of things in your book did. But something I think is very important, uh, here's a quote from your introduction. The field of exorcism is littered with examples of careless deliverance groups and lay amateurs who may use questionable and outright hazardous forms of, quote, liberation on people 
were struggling with depression or another form of mental illness. Uh, can you comment on that? Well, uh, you know, Paul, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic, and the Catholic Church tends to be pretty rigorous about making assessments and discernments. But that's not the case in, uh, you know, in all, uh, among, among all clergy, uh, Catholic and otherwise, but especially in some of the more fundamentalist, uh, denominations. They, they often interpret mental illness, uh, or even people's imaginations or people's struggle with evil or a personality disorder, for instance, as demonic. Um, uh, and, uh, it can cause a lot of harm, uh, when you, when you misdiagnose people. So, uh, we always insist on very rigorous discernments. Um, some people who are psychotic, some people who are multiple personality disorder or different personality disorders in general, uh, can easily be mistaken. Uh, now in, in a lot of cases, it just sort of wastes everybody's time. But in some cases, it really throws off people for quite a while. And obviously, um, in, in rare cases, and admittedly rare, there are these cases where there are outright abuses and people actually get harmed in exorcisms. So it's not for the faint-hearted. One has to, uh, one has to use a lot of, uh, rigor in one's discernment, just as, just as a doctor would. Okay. Ben, why don't we go back to the script and you take your first question, please. Sure. Well, uh, first thing, Dr. Gallagher, thank you so much for being with us and, and welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Um, so please tell us about uh, the first case uh, that Father Jacques, uh, as you call him in the book, uh, brought, brought you in on and that helped lead you into this field. Well, you've obviously read the book, so thank you. It was uh, published by HarperCollins called Demonic Foes, and they... I was very pleased that they let me write a serious book the, the way I wanted to write it. Uh, and in the book, I tell the story of how I got involved in this field. Uh, I always kind of tell people, um, I never volunteered. I never volunteered for anything. Uh, originally, uh, I was asked to help out Father Jacques, who came to my office when I was at uh, Cornell Medical College. And he said... Uh, uh, Dr. Gallagher, uh, I want to introduce myself, and he introduced himself as an exorcist. And he basically said, I'd be interested in knowing if you would be willing to evaluate some tricky cases we have. We want to make sure that we're not dealing with a, a medical or a psychiatric illness. I just finished my psychiatric training at Yale. I had some training in uh, internal medicine as well. And I was, quite frankly, uh, kind of skeptical of that sort of thing. Um, in the field of psychiatry, we had been just through, or sort of still in the midst of a period that we called, uh, you may, you guys may be familiar with it, called the satanic panic, where people mm -hmm. were seeing Satanists all over the place. And I said, so, uh, with all due respect, Father, um, I'm a little skeptical of uh, the overdiagnosing of some of that stuff in our country. And I remember him saying, uh, well, then uh, you're the perfect man for the job. 
which kind of took me aback a little bit. And then ever since, you know, I've evaluated many, many cases, uh, mostly um, people that clergy of different denominations and different faiths have sent me, um, sometimes uh, uh, certainly uh, non-Christian faiths as well. And uh, my chairman who wrote the preface to my book uh, and was a was a believing Catholic himself, said, I probably have seen more of these cases than any other physician in the world. But I still want to emphasize that these cases are rare. I just have had a lot of experience because at this point, people uh, come to see me. Anyway, the, the, the case that they, uh, that Father Jacques, as you call him, I use pseudonyms for all these people, by the way. Every, everything else in the book is completely accurate, but, um, as to details, but I, uh, I obviously disguised their identity. And, uh, that includes Father Jacques, uh, who was a, who was a, a well-known exorcist that many people know. Anyway, he, uh, he sent me this woman who claimed she was being beaten up by, uh, invisible spirits. And, uh, she had bruises all over her body. We did some medical tests. We couldn't really find anything to explain that. Uh, and her story appeared to be very credible that she would be lying in bed and all of a sudden in, in, in the face of onlookers and her family, these bruises would appear. So we certainly wanted to do some tests like, uh, for her, uh, platelets, that sort of thing. Uh, she went to a hematologist. We made sure that there was nothing medical going on and what I had to do, which was sort of my job, was to tell the priest, well, there doesn't seem to be any medical or psychiatric reason why these bruises are appearing. And her story, confirmed by by a number of other people, seemed to be very credible. And he said to me, well, thank you, Dr. Gallagher. That's what I thought. This is what we call not a possession but this is what we call an oppression. And um, I began to become familiar with the, the different terminology, oppression being sort of a more attenuated form of demonic attack as opposed to a, a, a possession, of which, I, of which I've also seen very, very many in the years since. Okay. Um, now, we had a fascinating conversation uh, off the air before you came, came on the show. Uh, actually, a few weeks ago, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, I was noting to Ben that uh, it's not often on the show, and this is going to sound terribly conceited, that we have someone who has more experience than I do, but you do in this field. Uh, my experience with exorcisms was pretty much limited to the 70s, with a few exceptions, but we do believe we have encountered and do all the time uh, these demonic entities that we refer to as energy parasites. So, and, and we we had a fascinating discussion on that. But what is a demon? Well, you're right, you, uh, Paul. You and I, you and I have talked. I know that you have a fair amount of experience. Uh, I just got this experience again because I'm a physician and because so many people have approached me over the years. Uh, these are not patients of mine, by the way. 
I don't go around diagnosing typical patients as um, um, uh, possessed uh, at all. I've never done that uh, because it's rare enough. So, yes, I've had a lot of experience and um, for a number of different reasons, which we could go into if you want, for a number of different reasons, I have come to the conclusion that the traditional teaching which I know you've been exposed to, although you may have your doubts about, that these uh, evil spirits are, in fact, uh, as according to Christian theology, fallen angels. They, ha- they rebelled against God. They seem to hate God, and they indirectly uh, appear to attack human beings for their own sadistic purposes. One of the reasons I believe that, Paul, is because in my experience, with successful exorcisms. I'm obviously not an exorcist, even though I'm the longest standing member of the American Society, the uh, International Society of uh, Exorcists as a scientific advisor, but I'm not an exorcist myself. But I've attended many exorcisms, and what I find is that under duress, in other words, under the commands of the exorcist, which is ultimately under the command of our Lord, because no good exorcist is going to say that he does this on his own, they're basically uh, saying they're doing it by the uh, power of our Lord delegated to them. And these creatures who often identify themselves as deceased souls, uh, dead relatives, uh, sometimes, uh, believe it or not, even gods and goddesses, uh, which I assume they, they did throughout ancient history, um, they are forced to admit that they are evil spirits uh, and that and they, they, they generally have to reveal their name. And they, they do admit that they are spirits that have rebelled against God and hate God. So I think it's a pretty good validation of the traditional uh, Christian view, which I know you don't entirely share. Well, I may share more of it than than uh, you imply. However, I think that there is a deeper level. W- what are their motivations? Just hatred and jealousy? Essentially hatred and jealousy, yeah. Mostly hatred of God, even though they've rebelled against God, and even though they are in no way sorry for what they did, interestingly. Uh, nevertheless, they hate God. Uh, and so they hate man made in the image of God, and they and they are also trying to seduce people to corruption. Uh, they also seem to claim some legal rights over people. This is why this is why the most dangerous thing for people to do is to um, get involved in the occult or dark arts. Uh, there was a woman uh, I dealt with and I write about in the book at length, who was possessed precisely because she was one of these rare Satanists. Yep. And so once once someone has committed to something like that, it's, it's, it's a little bit like joining the mafia. Once you join the mafia, they never want to let you go. So um, once once the demonic world has sort of done a favor for you, uh, at your bidding, sometimes, often, uh, in these serious cases, 
they, they feel they have some legal right to you, so to speak. Okay, I'm going to let uh, Ben jump in here, too. They can be very legalistic. So it's a combination of hate, sadism, entitlement. I mean, they regard us also as so much their inferiors. You know, and our intelligence is much, much less than, than theirs. I would say these creatures tend to be very intelligent, probably even more intelligent than Einstein. And um, they, they, they kind of regard us as little pets for them to to play with, indirectly uh, attempting to yes increase their increase their realm so to speak and certainly increase their rebellion against God. Uh, ben, I think I I was really excited for this because um, I have I have a few friends that are in the Roman Catholic Seminary um, up here in Boston at St John's. Uh, I even have a few friends over at the NAC over in Rome. And um, it's it's super interesting to me because I always find modern cosmology so fascinating. Um, growing up in the Eastern Orthodox Church, I, I always find I always found it kind of interesting how how like it, it was it was never it was not that it was never talked about, but it was kind of like who cares, right? Because um, when we say traditional, especially here in in America, it's a lot of a lot of the Christian traditions that have emigrated to America unfortunately take on a lot of characteristics of what was here at the time, which would have been puritanical, Protestant, all this stuff. So a lot of a lot of the the uh, the traditions were sort of changed and morphed and sort of took on uh, whatever was there at the time. So I believe um, I, I listened to a lecture a while ago, ironically on this topic, and. Um, Basically, the, the lecturer was uh, uh, Father Stephen DeYoung, who um, is a, a bi- biblical biblical scholar, and he was talking about how it's interesting how every generation of Christians they'll sort of come up with their own sort of uh, sort of like way that demon, demons exist. So for like you know medieval you know Western Christians, they were you know these red things that poked people with sticks. And then you have like C.S. Lewis, who has bureaucrats, basically satanic bureaucrats, you know, in screw tape letters. So when we say traditional, where does the tradition come from? Well, you know, I'm a professor of psychiatry, uh, so the bulk of my work is as a standard psychiatrist. But I also teach at a seminary. And I would say... Um, that the traditional teaching, uh, contrary to what you're implying, is been pretty consistent. Now, demons can appear in a lot of different forms and have done so. So um, they are able to materialize in different ways. That's precisely how they confuse people. So obviously, uh, different cultures, different um, brands of Christianity are going to have slightly different opinions. But it all comes back essentially to revelation and in the new testament there is no question that um, uh, jesus not only strongly taught about demons um, but he made a major distinction between curing illnesses and curing curing possessions so these were two different things yes and so from very early in the church uh, they believed that Jesus had given the church 
the power to uh, deliver people from uh, demonic uh, entities. And pretty much from the early church, it's always been taught, it's a more elaborate theology than in other religions, obviously, that these were uh, fallen angels, because that's what that's what Jesus taught. So it really does go back to what we think is revelation. You know, there are different varieties of, of Christianity, uh, different author, uh, heterodox movements. So one can emphasize the difference, but uh, certainly the main doctrine of the church in many ways has never really changed. And, and one has to, um, you know, one has to take that into account too amidst whatever diversity there obviously is within the Christian um, institutions. Okay, well, why don't we uh, take our mid-show break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in in New England's beautiful uh, Blackstone Valley. And we'll be right back with our tremendous guest, Dr. Richard Gallagher, so stick with us. On Sunday, January 29th, join the volunteers of the St. Anne Arts and Cultural Center at Cellos in Woonsocket. Cellos will donate up to 20% of your check to the center. By participating, you could win a $10, $20, or $50 gift card to Cellos. A certificate is needed to participate and can be obtained at Belos Flowers, Creative Impressions, The Honey Shop, Little General on Cumberland Hill Road, Timeless Antiques, Vos True Value Hardware, or print from the St. Anne Arts and Cultural Center website. Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal on WON AM and FM Radio. And we'll, let's get back to our discussion on exorcism and demons with Dr. Richard Gallagher. So, Ben, uh, you had uh, one more point. So I, I, I wasn't, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. Um, because I think there's an objective reality, and we all experience it subjectively, right? You being in the Western Church, me being in the Eastern Church, you know, we could use the same terminology for the same, or different terminology for the same things. Um, and that's just unfortunately because of our two very different experiences. Um, but I, I do want to point out that Christ also says in Scripture, he makes a, a very clear distinction between unclean spirits and demons. So when he refers to unclean spirits, what does he mean? Well, again, uh, you know, I've worked with many Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, individuals and clergy as well. And I really don't think there is all that much difference uh, between the two in the teachings in this area. Uh, I, I would I would say that when Jesus is uh, talking about uh uh, demons, which is a which is a, uh, a Greek word originally, and it it sometimes was a broader concept. He really is essentially uh, talking about unclean spirits. So uh, you know, Ben, you're you're a smart guy, I know, but uh, I, I I do think he uses the terms synonymously. Okay, uh, all right. Well, we did. We we're gonna have to do like eight or ten shows here because we have so many questions and listeners are writing in even now. Um, I think that um, I absolutely agree with the idea that there there is a trigger such as the occult. We've had case after case after after case over the last fifty odd years 
of uh, particularly kids using Ouija boards or doing seances, things of this kind. And um, it, it's a tremendous problem. So um, what triggers have you found in your cases, Doctor? Well, essentially, uh, you know, you've characterized it as people turning to the occult, sometimes uh, unwittingly, uh, but people kind of get in over their head and they they don't quite understand what they're dealing with. Now, I'm sure there are some kids who, you know, just fool around with a Ouija board, but uh, ultimately the point of a Ouija board is to access spirits. Uh, the famous case that lay behind the fictional version in The Exorcist was actually of a young boy, not a girl, in uh, Maryland, and his aunt was a spiritualist. And after she died, he tried to contact her seriously by a Ouija board. So this would be an example of someone who was turning to the occult um, in, a, in a serious way. Uh, obviously, there are people who even more seriously turn to the occult by actually becoming uh, Satan worshippers, that sort of thing. Even that stuff is rare. I do think there are a fair amount of people who get in over their head dealing with the occult. A, a related way that people open a door, as it's often as it's often framed, uh, is by engaging in very, very serious evil which in a way is also playing on the ground of demonic forces. So uh, you will see people turning to, you know, rather rather serious, uh, nefarious things in their life and or the occult. In some ways, what they're doing is, again, whether they're aware of it or not, is they're inviting in a, a darker realm, and that's really that's really what is what opens up people to serious demonic attack, whether oppression or possession. Now that is really I, I, I've seen that I've seen that just so many times. Uh, you know, it's it's practically it's practically universal. Oh no, I, I I tend to agree. There's always this theme of control. Yeah, it's like there's this idea that we can control the world around us through techniques. And it's, it's sort of the opposite of prayer, right? Because prayer is, is sort of a, allowing things to be oriented the way they should be versus, you know, effectively magic, right? Magic is my will be done rather than thy will be done. Do, do you find that trying to gain control of these sort of un, uncontrollable forces is kind of what leads down this path? No, exactly, Ben. I, I agree with you 100%. You know, I mean... Traditional Christian thinkers have always made a distinction between seeking God's help in various ways versus seeking magical help or help from alternate sources of uh, uh, forces in the universe. And uh, the latter are people who get themselves in trouble. Okay, let's go to some listener questions here. We have... Uh uh, Peter Shelley from Bogota, Colombia. Ben, if you want to. Ah, yes. The ever, the omnipresent Peter, uh, <laughs> writes, <laughs> writes to us. Uh, one of the symptoms said to indicate authentic, uh, possession is speaking in a foreign language such as Latin. Uh, sh- why should this be considered so, uh, unusual or supernatural if Catholic schools often teach Latin? Uh, fun fact, I did not, 
I went to Catholic school all my life. I did not weren't alert of, of Latin or weren't alert of a word of Latin. Jeez. Actually, you taught me some Latin, but other than that, yeah, I never learned Latin. That's a long story. <laughs> well, it's an understandable question, but you got to remember in these cases, the traditional signs that there is a foreign entity. That's really what you're talking about. Is there evidence of a foreign intelligence that is manifesting itself in some way? I mean, these cases of someone speaking perfect Latin or other languages as well, um, and I've heard many different languages spoken by demons, uh, it, it has to be dramatic. They have to have a knowledge of the language that goes far beyond what someone, you know, just picked up uh, here and there over the years in a Catholic school or something. Uh, I tell people, sometimes people say, well, how come they speak Latin? How come this only happens in, you know, Christian people or something? Nothing could be further from the truth. Possessions have occurred all throughout history. Probably the leading uh, chronicler of uh, possessions was a, a gentleman named uh, Professor Osterreich, who was a German professor, an agnostic, by the way, who about 100 years ago gave uh, evidence of uh, cases of dramatic possessions uh, in all cultures throughout history, uh, albeit rarely. So my own experience with uh, demons speaking languages is they speak that language perfectly. They've never studied it. I mean, you have to use your common sense there. You know, you're not talking about people who were exposed to it by their nanny or something like that. These are people who are never exposed to the language and then all of a sudden speak the language uh, fluently. I remember I was at one exorcism and the uh, uh, demon uh, through the woman was speaking uh, a vaguely Slavic language and none of us understood it. And then the priest said to us after the exorcism was concluded, uh, well, uh, the demon was talking to me in Bulgarian because I know Bulgarian. So, uh, almost incredible to uh, contemplate. These demons have been observing human beings from the dawn of history. They're very smart. They actually can speak, they actually can speak uh, any language. Uh, and in addition, you're looking for other signs. You're looking for incredibly abnormal movements like a levitation, for instance. You're looking for superhuman strength. I dealt with a woman who... Uh, had a, uh, uh, a Lutheran deacon, relatively inexperienced, um, start to do uh, prayers over her, and he he was like a 200-pound guy. Uh, she was about 90 pounds, soaking wet, and uh, she threw him across the room. That ended that session. Uh, I've also had uh, people reveal all kinds of hidden knowledge uh, including about how people died that she had never known. The Satanist woman that I talked about, again, the rare Satanist type, um, she told me how my mother died of ovarian cancer. Uh, now, she would have no way of knowing that. That happened years earlier. So the long and the short of it is you have to have clear evidence of a foreign entity you know, these diagnoses are very rigorous when well done. 
I mean, that's part of the reason they bring me in as a psychiatrist. Um, it's it's as rigorous as any science. It's as rigorous as any medical diagnosis. And the manifestations, whether it's languages or superhuman strength or hidden knowledge or some of the more bizarre stuff like uh, a levitation. I've talked to about 35 people in my life. I've never seen a levitation, but I've talked to about 35 people in my life who claim that they either saw or experienced while in a possessed state, a levitation. I've seen so it. I often say to people, um, Paul and Ben, I often say to people, how many, how many mentally ill patients do you know that all of a sudden can levitate or speak perfect Latin? Well, I'm a professor of psychiatry. I've never seen that in a patient. Uh, I must say, I'm a, I'm a little rusty with my levitation. Um, huh. uh, I Have you found that, in modern times anyway, that the number of possessions has increased, decreased, stayed the same? Are there are there any sort of significant um, explosions in activity? It's a very good question. Like a lot of good questions, it doesn't really have a simple answer. I mean, <laughs> the, short, the short answer is we don't really know. I mean, it's not like there's a, a worldwide uh, registry of this stuff. Mm. The perception is in the Western world, while... Um, more people have turned away from, uh, I would say, mainstream and traditional religions, orthodox religions of different sorts, that more people have opened themselves up to neo-pagan, um, um, alternate spiritualities that are sometimes have a dark side, and that there probably are more of these cases. Other, other, other people feel it's that because of all the publicity about possessions in the Western world, the movies, etc. I mean, look, look at the fact that we're talking about this on a, on a, on a major show, uh, you guys show. So more people are aware of that. So you may have more people fooled into believing that their problems, which may well be mental, uh, are caused by demons. I would say in the rest of the world, it's probably a little bit different. I mean, I know I know people from Africa, and they say there's always been possessions there because there's always been a lot of uh, flirtation with uh, sort of dark forces in in various uh, types of paganism. Okay, uh, just to add one point to your excellent uh, description of how you judge whether possession is taking place, and you mentioned this in the book as well. We would always look for external phenomena. Taking place uh, in the, in my case in the uh, state hospital in upstate New York, you know things flying off shelves and physical objects moving that otherwise would not. So that that's uh, uh, just to add to the point here. Okay, um, now we have. Uh, do we have a second question from Peter? Uh, we do. Actually, wait, well, let's wait a minute. Oh. <laughs> We're burning up this hour so quickly. I wanted to give Dr. Gallagher a chance to talk about his book, which I have right here and uh, where people can find out more. Well, like everything else, Paul, uh, I didn't really volunteer to write a book. I was asked to write a book. Uh, I was asked to join the International Association of Exorcists. Uh, believe it or not, I was asked to make a movie about some of the things in the book, which will be coming out eventually. Um, and uh, I was delighted that HarperCollins, uh, uh allowed me to write the book that I wanted to write. I wanted to write a serious book, 
with a lot of uh, fascinating and enthralling details, but uh, aimed essentially at the um, essentially at the um, uh, educated reader. Uh, I'll give you an example of uh, a reaction I got from a reader after reading the book uh, because I tried to prevent, present the evidence in a uh, serious way. And this was a guy I had known since I was an uh, intern in internal medicine, and uh, he was a colleague of mine, and he was a good friend of mine, actually. But it's not like over the years I uh, would go around talking about this stuff with everybody, including even a close friend. And so he called me up one day and he said, you know, Rich, uh, I read your book. How come you never told me about it? <laughs> and I said, well, Cliff, uh, you know, I don't I don't go around talking about it to everybody. And uh, I said, what did you think? And I, now he had a Jewish background. You know, he was a good guy. He had a, a vague belief in God, but he certainly wasn't brought up religious. And he said, you know, Rich, you cannot read this book without concluding that a very serious um, thinker, uh, I said thanks for the compliment, he said that a very serious thinker has made a strong case that there is evidence, including in the modern world, for evil spirits. And that's exactly that's exactly the uh, reader that I wanted to have, the person who's a searcher, like a lot of listeners to your show, I'm sure, uh, the person who's a searcher, who tries to be objective, but who keeps an open mind. And, you know, the, the, the essence of the argument is, look, um, there are many, many people, you know, thousands throughout history, even if uncommon, who have claimed to be attacked by invisible spirits. And they've been attacked by these sort of invisible spirits. Now, if you can't call an attack by an invisible spirit an evil spirit, I say in the book, words lose their meaning. It's it's obviously some kind of demonic figure. So I wrote the book for that type of person mainly. I also wrote it for people who may be confused about this whole subject. Many clergy have said it's been very helpful to them. Um, but I basically uh, wrote it at the level of the educated reader, HarperCollins uh, published it. It's selling very well, uh, by the grace of God. Uh, I'm not particularly materialistic, but I'm glad that I got my message out. And, of course, it's available on Amazon and most bookstores. Very good. Uh, okay, we have a question from Phil in Savannah, Georgia. And bear in mind, Doctor, that he's using uh, sort of our terms and our point of view. And w w we are, I think maybe more in agreement than, than you think, but we get into the process. That's what I'm curious about, about how the, this would work and the impressions I got during these situations. Uh, maybe the physics, things of that kind, and how the knowledge is obtained, all that sort of thing. So, Ben, if you would be so kind. Sure thing. Phil and Savannah. Okie dokie. Phil writes to us, The Catholic Church seems to be the religious branch uh, that is most associated with exorcisms, although I imagine that most priests uh, don't know what they are doing. His words. Uh, my question is, if a parasitical entity uh, from another corner of the multiverse is messing with a human, why does the church think the entity would care or react 
to the priest's definition of theology. Uh, it would be as if the entity told us uh, we had to honor his deity, uh, you know, whoever, um, and would be like, uh, and we would be like, um, who is that? Well, you know, I'm familiar, uh, uh, Paul. Uh, you you nicely sent me your book, and I'm familiar with some of your ideas about parasitic entities and uh, you might say the uh, physicality of this. There's no question that these entities uh, do prey on people, um, whether to call them true parasites, I think, is uh, is a question of semantics. Uh, but and they can affect the material world, but essentially they're spiritual beings. Uh, I think the Catholic Church, as well as the Eastern Orthodox Church, for that matter, have been the most faithful um, institutions. I mean, I know many wonderful Protestant people in the deliverance field too, so I'm certainly not criticizing non non Orthodox and non Catholic uh, practitioners. Uh, but I think the the most experienced people in this field tend to be Orthodox and Catholic clergy. Uh, they also have the most systematic theology. They also have the most experienced and ritualized, manualized, you might say, ways of dealing with these people. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think they're the best people to be in a knowledgeable position to understand them. Obviously, uh, there's all kinds of issues about uh, what's the true religion and all that. Uh, I don't think we're going to get into it in this show. but no, of course not. Uh, I, I, I do think that uh, the uh, way that the church has uh, uh, understood this theology is the most accurate way. That, that doesn't mean that People who are possessed necessarily, uh, you know, are expected to uh, uh, pay obeisance to a particular theology. Uh, but as I said earlier in the show, my own experience has been that during these successful exorcisms, the the demon is essentially forced to submit. The reason you make a big deal about naming the ex- the uh, demon. Is not so much that it's some kind of, you know, magical uh, token of success. It's that these demons try to hide. They've tried to hide throughout all history. They've tried to, they've tried to pretend to be Nero or Judas Iscariot. Or I had a guy who was, I had a guy who was possessed who pretended to be the spirit, pretended to be Zeus. Believe it or not. He asked, he asked me if I wanted to speak to Zeus. I declined. <laughs> but what I'm saying, guys, is that uh, when the exorcism is successful, and, and, and it is in most cases, not always, because not always not always does everyone turn back to, to God, but when the uh, exorcism is clearly having good results, these spirits are forced to admit who they are. And in my experience, they admit that they're, they're demons uh, with the attendant theology of uh, having been fallen angels. I think that there's a really important quote that I really like from G.K. Chesterton, which is, we need to think mythologically. 
and I, I, I say mythologically, um, with the caveat to it, little asterisk, that, that mythology refers to, um, you know, us existing in a story. We participate in a story. And this sort of new, well, I won't say new idea, but this sort of more pervasive idea that's been kind of coming around in, in philosophical circles is the idea of this metaphorical truth. That there's sort of this, these patterns throughout history that we've we've just sort of been repeating over and over again. So when we say history repeats itself, you know, it's not like a tongue-in-cheek thing, like, ah, we knew you were going to mess up, but it's it's the patterns that we as humans find ourselves in always. And we, we find ourselves as, as part of a story always. And, you know, that's why we have these things called the... They're trying to spin a narrative. They're trying to, you know, do this. And I, I, I believe it was... It might have been George Orwell who said, he who controls the language controls the world. And so in in this instance, the the sort of the the pattern throughout history, this has all always been a thing. It's always been around. You know, no, nothing's changed really. And my my sort of question is is the future. Do do you find that especially in recent history, you know, with the dawn of of artificial intelligence and sort of this whole sort of new new nexus of of thinking of of trying to sort of find new ways to control the world around us, whether it's it's building almost a literal god, you know, that's going to be, you know, in charge of ethics and and whatnot in Silicon Valley or anything like that. How is this any different than biblical times or is it no different? Um, look, Ben, you, you asked very sophisticated, uh, questions, so it's hard to have much of a discussion of it in a, in a few minutes. Um, you, you're using the word mythological in a more sophisticated sense. Most people use the word mythological, as you know, meaning sort of made up. But, uh, these different narratives, you might say, or, overall ways of of understanding the cosmos, including in more symbolic or non-literal language, has has always existed and will always exist. Uh, people are sometimes surprised to hear that some people characterize the uh, Adam and Eve story and the Genesis uh, as having a uh, historical truth to it, but also then having non-literal elements to it. Mm. And people are surprised when I, I point out that even the great Orthodox uh, theologian, St. Augustine, 1,500 years ago, wrote a book called On the Non-Literal Interpretation of Genesis. And he said, the Bible is not a scientific book. Uh, it's often historical, especially in the New Testament, but it's not meant to be a scientific book such that uh, it's childish to think that every element of Genesis was meant literally. Um, getting back to your question about the future, I mean, there's always going to be different ways people interpret the world, and they, they do have to come up with different metaphors or call it myths, uh, that are, are, are often, are often, uh, you know, sort of figments of their wishful imagination. Uh, I, I do believe that the Christian narrative, including the creed, as well as the, uh, findings of Revelation, um, they're not dying out. 
and I don't think they ever will die out. So I, I think there's enough in the Christian narrative that will be uh, forever and universally accepted, however people challenge that. I mean, some people will say, uh, some so-called biblical scholars, and many many biblical scholars are quite naive, they will say, uh, well, uh, Jesus' teachings about demons was anachronistic, it was just using the mistaken view of the time, this was a symbolic way of talking about evil. I, I think a close reading of the of the Gospels, a common sense view, is that that's nonsense, that he clearly uh, sometimes cured sick people, sometimes drove out demons, and he absolutely not only made a distinction between that, but literally uh, felt he was dealing with uh, evil spirits. Um, so there's always going to be mythological thinking, but uh, to quote Chesterton again, the, the Christian story seemed to be when the myths came alive and, and became true. Uh, that that's another quote from uh, Chester. Mm. <laughs> well, now, Doctor, I'm afraid we're just about out of time. If you would so honor us, we would love to have you back on a regular basis, if only to get through all these questions. Well, I'd be happy to do so. Uh, you know, I have a very definite viewpoint, which I think, uh, as both a professor of psychiatry and a professor at a seminary, I think I can back up. So if you guys can, uh, I respect your guys' view, uh, and if you can, if you can respect the uh, uh, the views of a, a fairly traditional Christian, uh, let's continue the dialogue. Absolutely, respect is the operative word. There is always more learn. to learn. That's how we learn, exactly. Well, Doctor Richard Geller, thank you so much. And uh, Ben, let's move on to our announcements, if we could, please. Sure thing. Now for something completely different. Um, you can look at a, you can look for us at the New England Parafest in Kittery, Maine. That's on April 22nd and 23rd, and we will debut a presentation on mimics in the paranormal. And we'll be at the Para Expo 2023 aboard the USS Salem at Quincy, Massachusetts, May 19th, 21st. We'll be among the speakers and we'll broadcast live from the ship on Sunday, May 21st. At this event, we will debut a new presentation, When We Die. Real cheerful. Uh, other events in 2023 for which uh, we or I will be present include the Exeter UFO Festival in September and the Arizona Dowsers Conference in October. And you can visit our show website, that's uh, www.behindtheparanormal.com, where you can find over 1,100 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WON, AM, and FM. Also hear uh, many of these broadcasts on major podcast platforms, up to and including uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. Okay, well, what do we have for next week, Ben? Well, well, uh, the first week of February, gee, it's already, already powering through the month, huh? Time flies when you're having fun. Indeed. So on February 5th, we'll welcome Dr. Uh, Simeon Hine for a look at dark matter monsters, uh, who Bigfoot sightings are often accompanied by other paranormal phenomena. Um, you, can, you can plan to call in or get your questions to us at paul at behindtheparanormal.com. And we leave you today with a rather sobering thought from the man whose memory we honored in last week's show, Nigel Kerner, the late Nigel Kerner. 
The terrifying thing is that most of us just cannot see the size of our predicament, unquote. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.